This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to The Bunker, your need to know on news and politics, five days a week. I'm Seth Jevil. Listeners to The Bunker always like a laugh, because with the state of the news... If you don't laugh, you'll have to cry. But comedy can be a very serious business, and a new book looks at the history of the British comic tradition over the last 130 years or so. I'm joined today by David Stubbs, sometime music journalist and author of Different Times, A History of British Comedy. Welcome to The Bunker, David. Well, thanks very much for having me. Maybe I'd like to start just by asking, what do you look for in good comedy? That's an interesting question, really, because, I mean, I think there's a range, really. I mean... On the, you know, on the one hand, an absolute pure belly laugh, you know, can be a great, great thing. But I think that especially these days, comedy is kind of comedy plus. There's a sort of other things going on, you know, like you know, think of like Gone Fishing, you know, with Morton Whitehouse. I think there's comedy, but there's also a sort of, um, a, you know, a sense of like looking out for people's mental health. You know, it's mm. been one of its kind of contemporary details, you know. Some other comedy has a great sense of inclusivity and range, you know, because I think that in the past, comedy has been guilty of not really, you know, of punching down and not being inclusive. And historically, you know, sometimes you do enter the title of the book different times, you know, it's obviously it's a pun, you know, it's, oh, there were different times. Not all comedy has, um, has really survived um, in terms of its values. And I think that it would actually genuinely alienate, you know, a lot of young people if they sort of saw the stuff that, say, I grew up with and um, took for granted in, the, in, in, let's say, the 1970s. So, yeah, it's a range, really. You know, sometimes, yes, it just can be the sort of the flat out... Um, no politics, no nonsense, mm. whatever, no problem of a Tommy Cooper. Or it could be um, something like um, the Detectorists, you know, which is much more than comedy going on. It's ostensibly comedy, but there's more going on. Thinking about those sort of different times, I mean, going back to the very earliest roots, the, the British music hall tradition casts a very big yeah. shadow and you, you get these... Uh, major figures, you know, from Laurel and Hardy to Peter Sellers coming out of that. But um, it's it's had a really rough time in terms of its reputation in recent years. You know, the, the whole thing about Blackadder having a go at uh, music halls and how <laughs> primitive and unfunny they are. Well, yes, absolutely. And I think, I suppose, it's because, you know, there was just sort of dealing in very kind of, you know, basic stock types, whatever. It, it, was, it, was, it was just the beginning, really, you know, crude knockabout sort of class-based comedy. But you can see the kind of roots of, like, you know, that like British comedy did probably develop from these very kind of crude stock types and, you know, the kind of the swells and orcs and mercy and all that and the kind of brown boots and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I suppose these were the kind of the rude beginnings. And also, I suppose, there was a versatility required. I mean, Charlie Chaplin couldn't just have been like a stand-up or whatever. You know, he had to do, you know, the whole range of skills, you know, acrobatic and what mm. have you. And, uh, yeah, there, you know, there is that as well. And especially, you know, obviously in the silent days, you know, that, that, that those things would have been paramount. How easy is it for comedy to be timeless? Because if I look at something like um, Hancock's Half Hour from the 1950s, mm. I mean, the, the comic acting is superb. Mm. But 
certainly I think a modern viewer would find, you know, when they're used to very heavily caffeinated performers going at 120 miles an hour and they're used to fast cutting and fast pacing. Mm. That's not the case at all. Yeah, that can be difficult. I mean, especially, I mean, you mentioned Laurel and Hardy. I mean, this is the difference, I think. I mean, I, I grew up in the sort of, I, I came, I was born in 1962. So I started being kind of sentient and watching television, perhaps in the early 70s. And back then, you had everything. You had the 1920s represented by documents like Golden Silence. You had Charlie Chaplin was on the TV all the time. Laurel and Hardy you had the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, all regularly on television, you know, as well as the contemporary stuff. But these days, you look at TV, if you look at TV at all, a lot of kids don't bother. You know, they, they don't. And it's it's a kind of, everything is a sort of permanent. Nothing feels like it's more than six weeks old. It's very hard. You know, you really have to sort of make an effort to go and access anything, I don't know, from sort of Tommy Cooper to Hancock, as you mentioned. You have to make an active effort to do it. You don't just collide with it the way that I did as a kid. I always imagined that someone like Charlie Chaplin would just be forever fixed in the firmament, but he's not. And mm-hmm. I think the problem kids have is quite simply, you know, the, yeah, the, the black and whiteness for a start. You know, the sort of production value of those kind of like short 20 minute films, you know, where there's sometimes the soundtrack, you know, disappears and it's just this sort of this crackle going on. And I remember like showing it to my little nephew and he just stared coldly at me and he went, what is this? <laughs> well, it's, it's. I wonder if it's just the black and whiteness because, um, you know, there's been colorizations around since the 1980s. Yeah. Yeah. But there's something about the if the production values are really bad, if it's a really bad print, that it's a lot of work to go through, it yeah. stops being funny. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it probably does, but unfortunately for kids, you know, in the way that, like, if you listen to sort of old, very old blues records, you know, or old Bessie Smith records, you, yeah. get, you get none of the sense of the it's power that she projected. Yeah. Yeah. It's easy to see why sort of visual comedy, like, you know, Charlie Chaplin, Benny Hill, Mr. Bean, mm. translates abroad quite well. But then you get these things like um, Allo Allo and the Ealing comedies and the Carry On films. I don't mean to suggest they're all like, but they're all very British. But mm. they do seem to have translated abroad really well and had their own sort of global audience in different ways. So, yeah, in different why? ways. I'm not, I'm not sure about the, the international reach of the carry-on films, you know. <laughs> they are yeah, definitely yeah. British. But, I mean, you know, it's surprising sometimes these yeah. things have a kind of slightly kind of niche thing. Yeah, it's an interesting question as to what travels and what doesn't. I mean, to be honest, the fact that Benny Hill had such a great international, especially in America, has astonished me because quite often... I was in the Gramsci Park Hotel in New York once, and there was this old couple sitting, laughing, watching this this Benny Hill thing that was being projected on this big TV screen. They were just laughing away. And I thought, how can you be finding this funny? To find this funny, you'd have to know all about Molly Weir, who was the star of the Flash adverts in the UK in the 1960s. If you don't know that, I don't know what you're laughing at. <laughs> it's very strange. I think that Benny Hill made it because of the format, because he did things in an long. It happened to be usable in American TV in the way that, like, a lot of... British stuff wasn't, and so that travelled. But then Morecambe and Wise didn't travel, yeah. you know. Uh-huh. And Hancock never really made it, and things like that. And it's strange, you know, the ones that uh, the ones that do and the ones yeah, that don't. Yeah, but it's also you know, things like LOLO and even Are You Being Served. I mean, it's mm. huge in Germany, really, really big. Yeah. I mean, yeah, again, that, 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 that is curious. Hello, hello is, is, is very strange because I think it's very clever in the way that it kind of plays with sort of British ideas of foreignness and foreign accents, whatever. Yeah. It just seems to be pretty much all about that, really. You know? Are you being served is, is a curious case. It's, it's, a, it's a bit delicate. It's a bit sort of creaky. And it's very much a sort of project of the, product of the British mindset in lots of ways with this kind of cheek, but ultimately sort of deference towards, you know, um, class and uh, authority, and I mean, in its defence, it doesn't pretend to be anything that it's not. Mm. But at the same time, you know, for anyone who's ever sought out the um, the movie they made of uh, Are You Being Served, I think it may be one of the worst films I've ever yeah, seen. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's it's dreadful. Yes, yeah. Obviously, in the 
70s, there were a lot of films made based on sitcoms. And yeah, one or two of them were pretty bad. And so generally, as a result of like things like that and the holiday on the buses and stuff like that, they have a poor reputation. But in fact, quite often, some of them were really, really good. So for example, the film made of um, The Lightly Lads in 1976, which is called The Lightly Lads, based on, you know, whatever happened to The Lightly Lads. Probably the best thing they ever did. It's the mm. funniest thing they ever did. The Dad's Army film is great. And the first and the first Steptone Son film in particular is almost like a tragic comedy. It's absolutely mm. magnificent. Porridge film, also great. Yeah. Yes. Um, and then, bizarrely, of course... Uh on the buses ends up being one of the most successful movies that yeah. Hammer Horror, yes. sorry, Hammer Studios have ever put out. Oh yeah, yeah, but it, it, it's, I mean, it, it's so, it, it, it's so sort of creaky and dodgy that it, 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 you can almost develop an affection for it. Really, I mean, it's, it's actually on the buses. It's bad in so many ways, but it's it, actually the ensemble is the ensemble cast is is is, is quite good, really, quite strong. Also, it's a reasonably authentic depiction of like working class life and people having to sort of live cheek by jowl in very sort of cramped oh, conditions. I, I, I can see that, but at the same time, you know, for, for listeners who aren't familiar with On the Buses, and I really don't urge you to go <laughs> out and watch it, um, it's basically a, a group of bus conductors in the station mm. discussing how they've been molesting people for the day and how they're proposing to molest them in the day ahead. That's a large part of it. Serious question for you, which is that we, we do tend to think, I think, of the best of British comedy. You know, we mm. tend to think of something like Faulty Towers. Mm. And we don't tend to think of, you know, these sort of mediocre sitcoms of the 70s you sort of point to in the book, the uh, mm. things that have often been forgotten that make up a large part of that. Yeah, I mean, this is it, because it was staple. And it so happened that I would have been a kid at the time and I would have watched all of this stuff regardless and, and quite uncritically as well. You know, as, as far as I was concerned when I was a kid, you know, pop music was fast, then that was great. And if something was on with a sort of laugh track, then, then great, whatever. And I, I was a fairly undiscerning watcher, but it did actually mean that I kind of was familiar, you know, with a great many of these these, these shows. I mean, I'm fascinated by this actually as a historian because mm. it gives you a good yardstick for what's popular culture and what's normal or what's mm. not at a particular time. Mm. Um, but, you know, that gives me a slightly detached way of looking at it. And so uh, some of them I enjoy very much and some of them I do think this is truly awful. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, they're distinctly creaky. And of course, you know, with what I describe in the book as like the fishbones, you know, the odd moment of like racism or homophobia or whatever. Um, but, you know, you get, actually, you get that right up into sort of, you know, like the goodies, you know, and all the blackface that goes on in mm. the goodies, for example. And even actually quite often, something like Monty Python, you know, great as it is, I think precisely because it was attempted to be quite edgy, yeah. a lot of Monty Python actually looks a bit dodgy these days. You know, well, not really, I say a lot, but, you know, there are, there, are, there are definitely dodgy bits, put it that way. Yeah, not just Monty Python, but even thinking something like Spitting Image, I think, suffers mm. from are remembering the very best of it. And usually mm. you'd sort of watch an episode and find there was something that was absolutely hysterical that has mm. you laughing up out loud. And then there are two or three things that are quite funny. And a lot of it's not very good. How important do you think it is for comedy to connect with the audience? Because on the one hand, there are things like, you know, Steptoe and Son you mentioned, Only Fools and Horses, The mm. Royal Family. They really try and reflect everyday, normal experiences that the audiences have. Mm. And then you look at something like, um, you know, historical things like Blackadder or, or even Up Pompeii or something like Red Dwarf, where the setting is so out there. You do ask yourself, how easy is it for the audience to connect with the characters? Well, I think, you know, almost besides the idea of something like, say, Blackadder, I think that, like, the Blackadder character is somebody that's kind of, you almost imagine has been sort of transposed from the 20th century. With all with kind of contemporary sort of art and values and things, you know, surrounded by these kind of ridiculous pantomime characters and mm. medieval monsters or whatever. I think that's where the connection is. I think he's the vital connection there. 
Um, yeah, and I guess other series or whatever. I think it's a way, you know, despite you know, like Red Dwarf or whatever, you know, this, you know, despite its kind of setting, this kind of thing, is that in terms of the, like, the actual characters and the way that they talk, you know, there is this kind of amusing disconnect between the down to earthness, as it were, of their talking and their particular situation. So, um, yeah, you know, I think it's really important. It's interesting because I think that comedy over the years has become better and better at doing what you just mentioned, which is you know, reflecting life as it's actually lived. Because I think for a long time. Even the best comedy did quite often deal in stock types, whether it was, you know, from mother-in-laws to um, gays or whatever, you know, those kind of things. Um, yeah, suburban households. Poor, poor, you know. Very poor, especially Asian people getting desperately poorly represented. Mm -hmm. And all of this improved. And I think that one of the great catalysts for that was what was in the late 70s, what was a sort of an equivalent to like the whole punk thing in the UK was alternative comedy. And gradually... The impact of that was the same as the impact that it had in music, where it's kind of driving out the old sort of dinosaurs of prog rock and stuff like that, and sort of, you know, saying we have to kind of re rethink um, the way that we make music and who gets to make music, and you know, and it being about kind of like ideas rather than these kind of you know these like monstrous kind of prog conceits. Um, so, in, in in terms of alternative comedy, essentially what it was saying to people: look, you can't have the mother-in-law jokes, you can't have the racism, you can't have the sexism, you can't have, you know, all of the ableism, whatever. So it, all that, all up to a, a, another generation might say, oh, very soon, oh, we can't laugh at anything. But the whole point is, no, you have to think harder and do better. And the result of that, people, there was a genuine, especially coming in the 90s, there was a genuine flowering of comedy that was more nuanced, that was more inclusive, that was more imaginative, that reflected situations that was more original and that sort of did away with all of these kind of sort of lazy stock types that had just been around since basically the music of the days in some some cases. And whether it was the surrealism of like um, Vic and Bob, um, Vic Reeves, Bob Mortimer, or the almost like super realism of like the royal family, people, audiences were able to kind of make a much stronger connection because they were working harder to create a comedy that really reflected, you know, the, the sort of like sometimes the sort of funny little details and nuances of how life is really live and how people think and feel. I want to ask a bit about um, alternative comedy because it's, it's often, you know, said it's a real watershed and certainly there's a change in generations. You know, you've got people like Ben Elton and Alexis Sale who are very different as comedians. Mm. But at the same time, if you look at some of the comedy, like, you know, not the nine o'clock news, is very much the building on bits of Monty Python. It's still that same kind of humour. So I wonder if it's that big a disconnect. Well, yeah, I mean, Not the Nine O'Clock News is interesting really because, yeah, I mean, there isn't that much of a disconnect really between Not the Nine O'Clock News and, say, Monty Python. It's perhaps in that almost like in that sort of footslightsy tradition. But, I mean, I would put Not the Nine O'Clock News at more of the... Well, conservative is probably not quite the right word, but I think that the real kind of anarcho <laughs> yeah. revolution is, is the young ones, you yeah, know, absolutely. and I think the way that that just kind of explodes the whole kind of medium, literally quite often, you know, you know, there's, there's, there's walls collapsing in it, although literally in that house the whole time, and it's metaphorically walls are collapsing and, you know, um, all that is. Thatcher does loom large over a lot of this. I yeah, mean, absolutely. Yeah. Which she's crucified on a daily basis mm. by Ben Elton, for instance. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, it was a whole sort of... Uh, you know, I think in, in music as well and in comedy, yeah, there was this sort of what seemed like a massive counter-reaction, but of course in terms of numbers, I mean, you know, she yeah. had the numbers when it came to election time. Yeah, but it was a new kind mm. of establishment to, yeah. to rebel against. That's right, yeah. I mean, it's ironic really with the dominant and excellent political comedy of the um, 80s was um, Yes Minister stroke Yes Prime Minister. And yeah, in a way, funny as it is, it's like politics... That's, it's almost like talking about the politics that existed 
in the I don't know the Wilson the Callahan yep. or Heath years really in which there's a sort of awkward consensus and at the end of the episode a sort of normalcy is restored stability and equilibrium is restored as far as that we keeps the civil service happy anyway etc cetera, etc cetera. but of course what was actually happening was something very different I mean Thatcher was kind of really sort of rolling back the frontiers of the welfare state etc cetera, etc cetera, introducing all kind of radical change you know mm. so it's, it's, it's ironic that the dominant political comedy was actually about 10 years behind the times yeah and of course Thatcher herself consider herself to be a yes minister fan. Oh, and, I'm totally, uh, I'm know, sure, yeah. So I'm sure she liked it because, you know, she was actually dismantling all of the kind, you know, she was like a war, you know, with Sir Humphreys. But I think you're right that since the 80s, certainly there's really been a sort of sea change in the kind of mm. comedy and the kind of voices that you get in comedy as well. It's really noticeable. We mentioned a bit things like Spitting image and not the nine o'clock news, and I'm I'm a really big fan of satire, and you know, right, yeah. a, lot, a lot of this really feeds into is the idea of comedy with a point. Mm. But how difficult is it to balance out making a point with just going for the cheap laugh? It isn't easy, and I think that satire, from a comedic point of view, represents a kind of an invidious task, really. Mm. Uh, and I think ever quite often, you know, quite often the satirists themselves don't necessarily seem interested. Some of the great satirists have also been great conservatives in lots of ways and not particularly interested in, um, you know, in, in sort of, you know, revolutionary transformation of society yeah. or whatever. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you know, the, the people attempting that are quite the, the biggest butts of the satire, really, you know. I mean, something like when Spitting Image came back, I mean, this, this rebuild, and I thought it was an absolute disaster. And part of it was that the caricatures they created of people like Boris Johnson and Donald Trump, if anything, flattered them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Politics has almost become such a kind of monstrous caricature of itself and it's become so kind of excessive and so driven to the far right that satire, (laughs) what can you do? I mean, laughter is a form of release and Mm. the question is, you know, do we need a release or not? Yeah, there are kind of very hostile forces in society that are kind of making people's lives miserable in all Mm. kinds of ways. I mean, you know... You know, capitalism to the kind of pol- kind of politics that's been you know, the cruelty of Suella Braveman or whatever. And I think that comedy is therefore isn't necessarily to sort of fight back in a satirical role. It's as I was saying earlier on, it's almost a kind of it's to look out for people. It's to exude sort of kindness, a sort of radical kindness, mm. really. It's to think about issues like mental health. It's to think about everybody feeling included, nobody being punched down at. You know, mm. it, th- those are the things that I think that comedy can do and comedy can do most effectively. I think that's fair. And um, when I, I think of examples of that being done well or badly, I mean, someone like Sacha Baron Cohen mm. is both very good and very bad at yeah. the same time. Yeah, so I mean, I think, yeah. Know, yeah. For instance, looking at the way he uses Borat, sometimes he brilliantly uses the sort of prejudices of people to make yeah. that come out. Mm. But at the same time, on a superficial level, you do feel sometimes that he's just going for the cheap laugh of, I'm a foreigner with a funny accent, and yeah. that's going to please a certain number of viewers. I think that's absolutely right. I think he's done some absolutely brilliant stuff as Sasha Francone. But yeah, and he's done, you know, there's one, you know, the old man who's retired, and he says, you are retard, you know. And mm. I, you know, it's just like, if that had been my dad, I wouldn't have been best pleased. You've talked quite a bit in the book about uh, how we tackle race and comedy. I mean, we already touched mm. on how that's getting a bit better. Um, how much is that something peculiar to the way the British tackle comedy, or, or is it, you know, a global problem, really? Well, I mean, I think, I'm sure that, like, in America, um, which I suppose is the 
great sort of other comet tradition that we're most familiar with. You know, there's been a kind of similarish trajectory, really. You know, the, if you look at the history of comedy, about the gradual introduction of African American characters, people mm. of color, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, it's very it, obviously with till death is due part. I mean, it was terrible because you're supposed to be dealing with a racist character, but there is, but, but there was barely any black people at all. You know, represented. You know, they mm. couldn't, couldn't bring themselves to have like. I mean, there was a slightly later reboot of um, the Alf Garnet character where he has this kind of gay. Black sort of guy, who, mm. you know, back to kind of housekeeper for him, but you know, it just seems a bit kind of, you know. And then he moved to something like in the 1990s. Mm. Growing up, I remember seeing Goodness Gracious Me yeah. and thinking, I don't think this is very funny, but it feels very different, mm. and you know, something that's really actually very welcome. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the former, I mean, I did enjoy um, um, Goodness Gracious Me, um, you know, and sketches like going out for an English, you know, yeah. I went the yeah. blandest no, item good, on the menu, yeah. It didn't, from a sort of formal point of view, I don't think it was especially radical. But of course, yeah, what was radical, what was new is that it had, you know, it had an Asian cast. And they were a kind of addressing issues that arose, you know, from, from yeah. Asian society, you know, and Asian families and stuff like yeah. that, making jokes that kind of arise from all of that. You know, the mother that thinks no, she can make it, everything from a small aubergine. And the whatever. only thing that didn't work for me is the same reason, actually, why I never took to look at Little Britain, which is just catchphrase-based comedy. It does right. get a bit repetitive and a bit tiresome, quite quickly. Mm. But, um, you know, catchphrase-based comedy has been a huge part of our, um, you know, life for oh, yeah. decades. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I have nothing against catchphrase-based comedy at all. Mm. Yeah, Dad's Army, you know. Yes, quite. <laughs> I mean, there are um, plenty of debates that we now have on, uh, you know, is is comedy going woke? Is it too woke? I, I can remember in the 1990s, we had exactly the same debates over, you know, what we call at the time political correctness. Yeah. So I don't think this has ever not been present in, in one way or another. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, 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 yeah. So in the 1990s, it would, people talk about political correctness. Today, as say, we talk about woke. Before political correctness, people talked about do-gooders or whatever. I mean, this is just the sort of, you know, the Daily Mail machine that's kind of like grinding away uh, resentfully any attempt to, uh, to kind of improve people's lives. Um, I, don't th I don't think there's a problem with wokeness. I mean, John Cleese made this point, he says, you know, who's gone a bit reactionary in his later years. And he said something like, what would a woke joke sound like? And the thing is, it's not like there was that sketch in um, the Fast Show, the character Bernard Wright on, <laughs> like, you know, goes on, says, an Englishman, an Irishman, a Pakistani walk into a bar. What a wonderful example of racial integration. Yeah. You know, but that's not what a woke joke is all about. It's about the absence of anything that's likely to be kind of upsetting, hurtful, needlessly punching down or offensive, mm. whatever. I mean, pretty much all of Tommy Cooper. It's all woke jokes, you know. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you know, what you want there is a Rembrandt and Stradivarius, you know. Unfortunately, yeah, and th th that's fine. It's a work mm -hmm. joke because it's 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 very very funny, and it, it and it's it is without sin, as it were, mm. you know. And we've changed the setting of comedy a little bit. I mean, if we think back to the sort of music hall roots of this, there used to be a live audience, and then mm. in the early days of television, there was a live yeah. audience. We got very used to the idea of canned laughter to mm. being you know, almost a cliche, and now we've moved to no laughter track at all. Are we getting yeah. lonelier in our comedy? <laughs> Um, oh yeah, the laugh track is is a fascinating thing because when the royal family first emerged, they they had to fight really mm. hard to say no, don't don't put a laugh track on this, you know. Um, 
And they were quite right. And absolutely, it was quite right. Um, because it then allows this kind of more naturalistic, detailed um, comedy with its own particular kind of rhythms. You don't, have to, you don't have to spike every 10 or 15 seconds to get out of a big laugh. So it allows for a complete, you know, a, a much different kind of comedy that like breathes mm. more naturally. It has its own rhythm and its own sort of cadence. You know, there's episodes where there's just lots and lots of repetition. Mm. And, you know, it's really, really funny. And, and, and a laugh track would just ruin ruin that. And yeah, we've moved more, we tend to move, but to the extent that now, if you had, I don't know, say a Lee Max sitcom, something like that, and then where it still retains a laugh track, it sounds quite surreal, really. You know, you sort of jump, you know, who are those people, you know? Well, also, I suppose we've all unconsciously become quite used to the laugh track yeah. because there aren't actually that many laughter effects and, and they're all on cue and on demand for a set amount of time. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah, there's definitely be a tendency. You know, there's definitely been a tendency away from the laughter. Of course, there is. I mean, it might well be that, say, in ten years' time, that the whole idea of this kind of naturalistic comedy, the like detectorists, you know, the lot of comedy made in this vein, it'll feel well. That's actually a bit spent, really. Can yeah. we get back to something different? You know, so it could all change. Well, that's fascinating. Thank you so much, David. Um, mm. David's rip-roaring romp through over a century of laughter is different times, a history of British comedy, and is available from all good booksellers and Amazon. Thank you for joining us, dear listeners. You'll find us five days a week, every week. And if you enjoy the podcast, remember you can support us on Patreon from just £3 a month. You'll be supporting our ever-expanding catalogue of shows, including The Bunker, Oh God, What Now? and Paper Cuts. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Bunker Daily was presented by Seth Tavoff. I'm so sorry, he's from Barcelona. <clears throat> Group editor was Andrew Harrison. Oh, you dirty old man. <laughs> the managing editor was Jacob Jarvis. What a plonker. And the producers were Liam Tate and me, Alex Reese. You stupid bum. Art direction by James Parrott. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.